0: is Craig Brown and welcome to the second season of Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. The passage today is Luke chapter 21 verses 25 through 36. It happens to be the lectionary reading for the first Sunday in Advent, year C which happens to be the reading for November 28, 2021. And with the beginning of the season of Advent, we begin a new year in the lectionary. It's the year C cycle beginning with this Sunday. This particular passage of Scripture in Luke's Gospel is dominantly based on another passage of Scripture we read in one of the other Gospels in Mark chapter 13. There, are Many scholars believe that Luke probably had the Gospel of Mark sitting in front of him in some form or another, when he actually wrote this particular section of his own gospel. As this text opens in Luke chapter 21, we find it vivid with images and metaphors and all sorts of symbolism to help us understand what Jesus is trying to tell us in this particular text. And in verses 25 through 28, we read about the signs of the times. Jesus says there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and on the earth distress among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. These huge cosmic signs are amazing signs that are designed to demonstrate some coming event on the horizon. While Luke's version of the story is different from Mark's, it bears lots of similarities. But in one way that it's different, though, is that in Mark's gospel, there's a mention of God's elect in this passage of scripture and the elect being a more than likely, the church. Luke leaves this out and wants the reader to kind of um, come to some conclusions about the imperative of this text, about what it means to pay attention to these signs of the times. And when, when the writer, Luke, uses these words like the sun, the moon, the stars, this is language that a Greek community would understand. Greek astrologers use this combination of words, sun, moon, and stars, quite often. It's designed to help convey some cosmic sense of this text. The text goes on and talks about the distress and perplexity people will face as they see these signs happening right before their very eyes. Each word is making note of this kind of cosmic shift in things. That the comings of Jesus are, in many ways, uh, destabilizing and confusing. And, And I say comings of Jesus in the plural because what this text is highlighting for us is the the different advents of Jesus, the comings of Jesus. And in this first Sunday of Advent, we read a, a story really about the second coming of Jesus. And at Jesus's first coming and his second coming, there's this destabilizing and confusing way in which the whole order of things has been changed. And Jesus's first coming changed the established religious order of first-century Palestine in which Jesus challenges religious systems and architectures to think about how we live our life in new and different ways. And this distress and perplexity that Luke talks about in chapter 21, verse 25, gives way in verse 26, Jesus tells us, to people fainting from fear and the expectations that are things about to come upon the world that the natural reaction to distress and perplexity is to be afraid. When I first became a Christian, I remember it well, that the first thing that drew me to wanting to understand the gospel was this notion of the second coming of Jesus. I was a, a young teenager and at the time being evangelized by other teenagers. And so the centrality of this notion of the second coming of Jesus at that time instill the sense of fear in me. And as I became a young adult and eventually an older adult, I, I began to live my spiritual life not out of that basis of fear, but understanding certainly where it came from. These are disturbing signs and symbols in this text. But the reactions here are not to epitomize the community of faith. That's actually the point of this text is to dispel fear, to move us away from this kind of apprehension about the coming of Jesus. Jesus goes on in verse 27. He says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This image is lifted directly out of Daniel chapter 7, another piece of literature in the Bible known as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature um, brings to the forefront these kind of symbols and images that help us understand some meaning they're not designed to be interpreted literally. They're designed to be interpreted for their meaning and the substance of what they're trying to communicate to us. That somehow the way Jesus represents this second coming is the consummation of justice at the end of all things. The final judgment of God is represented in a way by the the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus. And many scholars have debated About this particular text, whether it really is applying to the second coming of Jesus, or is it applying to the destruction of the Jewish temple that occurred in uh, the year 69 CE. But what we need to notice about this text in Luke 21 is there's a very clear break between verse 24 and 25, and in Mark's version of this story, uh, that break is much, much clearer. But it's this this break in the story is designed to help us understand that we're talking about two different events. That the destruction of the temple in verses twenty four and earlier in this chapter is very different from verses twenty five and those following. The encouragement here is this in verse twenty eight. Twenty eight. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This imminence of Jesus's so-called return is highlighted here. And the purpose for this text isn't to give people any sense of timing or clairvoyance. It's really to help them understand how to prepare and to take courage. Luke writes this story probably somewhere between 50 and 60 CE and maybe edited into its final form a little bit later. And it invites the community to raise its hopes, to understand what's happening in this destabilized world that Jesus' first coming and his death and resurrection have ushered into being. And that's really the, the key passageway here for us, is to have assurance in the face of chaos and how that assurance in the face of chaos reveals a grace from God uh, the goal here isn't to bring order out of the chaos, somehow to organize or systematize it or to take power or authority over it. It's the assurance, even in the face of chaos, that there is a grace from God that is at work in our lives and in the life of this world. So often our reactions reactions to things like the sun and the moon and the stars and distress among the nations is to be wrapped up in that larger hysteria. And the key passageway here is helping us understand that assurance is built upon a prayerful and peaceful response. That these aren't surprising signs to us. They are going on even today in our own world. And that our call is to embody this kind of assurance in God. The text continues in verse 29. And Jesus shifts in this story to begin a a, a parable designed to help us understand with some sense of confidence how we're to live in the midst of this very confusing time. And Jesus appeals to a fig tree as a parable. Now, a parable is nothing more than a common image or a story with an ethical or spiritual imperative. In other words, it's a story or an image that's designed to convey to us some kind of meaning, that's designed to shape our behavior or our attitudes or our understanding. Parables are not what it's about. In other words, this story or this parable is not about a fig tree and the, 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 the nature of fig trees. The fig tree represents something greater. It has a spiritual implication for us. And Jesus tells us that look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you yourselves know that summer is now near. The fig tree was unique in that it was one of the very last trees in ancient Palestine, it is today, to lose its leaves. It doesn't lose its leaves or drop its leaves in the fall. It typically does that more in the winter. And its new leaves often sprout at a very late point in spring, just before the summer. So the fig tree is like many other trees, but it's a so-called late bloomer, if you will. And that fig tree is designed to help the the readers of this story understand that look to the signs of the times. There's a confidence that happens in the place of confusion. In the midst of all this upheaval and chaos, there's a sign here that something is happening and that God is at work. Now, we have to name the problem in this particular section, verses 29 to 33. Jesus shares a lot of this information about the so-called second coming, As if it were to happen right away. It's certainly rendered that way in Luke's Gospel, it's rendered that way in Mark's Gospel. Well, what we know is two thousand years later is it has not happened right away. So we could say a few things about it. One, we could say that Jesus was wrong. And there are many scholars who believe that the affirmation of Jesus about the timing of these events, the immediacy of them, he was just simply wrong. Number two, we could say that in our reading of the text, we've misinterpreted it. We just simply don't understand clearly what the text is saying. A, a third option, perhaps, is to just simply wonder about timing. I mean, did the words of Jesus, did they mean to convey exact chronology? Or are they simply trying to help us understand how this unfolding of events, regardless of their timing, invites us to a deeper response? You know, Jesus even says in verse 38, too. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There's been many biblical scholars over the years that have tried to interpret all the different ways this could mean, and to be honest, it means what it means. It's, it's right there. And, and in a sense, if we're to wonder about the timing here, it's not so much that that generation of people Jesus was speaking to, that all these things would happen in their lifetime. No, rather, there's an immediacy given to this text, because in some ways, what Jesus is telling us is that his coming is the final word. You know, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us about a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that this revelation of Jesus is the, the fullness of the expression of the gospel, and that this really is the end. And so when people often ask, you know, kind of a sensational way, when are the end times? Well, I think we can honestly answer that the end times began with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we live in this season, this time in which God's people, the church, are called to live in a way that invites this world into a saving relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And that's really the key passage we hear hear for us, that true hope is grounded in the saving grace of God. You know, this notion of kind of this ever evolving, improving world is, and, and that world could come into being absent the reign of God is wrongly placed. So what I'm suggesting is this, is that if our gospel is actually good news, that it actually has to be good news, then that this God is the one who is saving all things That this is the God who is saving the cosmos. This is not a human effort or a human enterprise. This is the divine work we're called to be a part of. You know, Jesus' words here in Luke, smack of an unfolding of events in a manner of God's own making. And we're accountable for action in this season. So recognizing that God's saving grace is the grace that's at work here doesn't mean we're off the hook. No, no. We're actually even more on the hook. We're accountable for action in this season, having experienced the grace of God. We just need to make sure that our expectations are clear. And that takes us really to the final section uh, of this particular passage in verses 34 to 36. Be on your guard. This is really the The point of this whole story in beginning in verse 25 in Jesus's explanation about the so-called end or the second coming of the son of man. He says, but be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life that this day will not come on you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon those who live upon the face of all the earth. There's some exhortations in these three verses, verses 34, 35, and 36. The first one in verse 34, but be on your guard. And then you can read again in verse 36, but stay alert at all times, praying that you have strength to escape. So be on your guard, stay alert at all times, pray that you have strength. These three injunctives are critical for the final segment of the text, the call the call for Christian community here is for vigilance and careful prayer. What are we to guard against? Well, in this chaotic age in which we have been living for centuries, we're not to be weighed down with three different words that, the, that Jesus uses in this particular version of his speech in Luke's gospel. Number one, don't be weighed down by dissipation. In other words, the wasting of time, the meaningless living of life, don't be weighed down by, number two, drunkenness. So don't try to avoid or to kind of drown the reality in which you find yourself. And number three, don't be caught up in the the worries of this world or the worries of this life. Anxiety can really eat us alive in some ways. Don't be weighed down by those things. So if we're experiencing those things, dissipation, drunkenness, worries, anxieties, it's simply not to say that those are wrong. That's not the point. What's the point here is that if we're caught in those places, we need to take constructive action to move out of those places to understand how those places work in our life and how they keep us from seeing the reality of what God is doing. The warning and the caution in this text is against escapism. See, the lure of dissipation of drunkenness and worry is very real. And Jesus tells us that they're like a trap ensnaring us and kind of boiling us into the chaos and the disorder going on around us. And it's going to come upon everybody on the face of the earth. There's no escape from it. Jesus is clear. Everyone is going to experience this. The issue here is not so much, is Jesus coming again? Is there going to be this apocalyptic second coming or not? If there is, when's it going to happen? That's not the point. The point here is this, that this message is for our instruction about how we're to live in this age. Prayer. Prayer is for endurance. It's to overcome all of these dangers. And it's not to say that if we just pray hard enough, all these things go away. Not true. But prayer is the way in which we experience spiritual transformation that begins to trigger action. Ignorance is not an excuse. And that's really the key passageway here for us. That our work is to be diligent and focused in sharing the grace of God. You see, we're not denialists who simply abandon the cause. We're also not idealists who believe that all is easy and well. No, we're in this space, a different kind of space, and the struggle here is to recognize the age in which we now live, an age that is polarized. It's been polarized by pandemic. It's been polarized by so many other things. But ultimately, all of this polarization and pandemic is an expression of human pain. And this pain can be dealt with in a variety of ways, dissipation, drunkenness, or just worrying about it. The notion here for us as followers of Jesus is to focus on the ministry, the word, and the work of Jesus as the last best hope for the world. Remember, the text is not written to frighten. It's to instruct and encourage so that no matter what comes, we can stay focused on the truth, grace, and hope that endures. Prayer is our pathway for union with God so that we're spiritually transformed, which would then invite us into action for the sake of others and even for our own well-being and health. It's important that we remember That these stories of the so-called second coming are not there to scare us. Rather, they're there to give us clarity and focus about how we're to live in a world that is deeply hurting, that's deeply in pain, and that's longing for hope in a deeper way. That's it for this week. I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.